Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Welcome. We're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts. Book of Acts. So remember last week, we were in Acts 7. We're going to continue in Acts 8 today. Reminder that uh, Jesus, when he ascended, he gave marching orders to his disciples and to the church. And uh, you see the... um, uh, replacement of Judas given in Acts 1. You see Pentecost, the uh, fulfillment, of, fulfillment of the uh, Holy Spirit being outpoured in Acts 2 with the fulfillment of Pentecost. You see Peter offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel in Acts 3. You see the church starting to formulate in Acts 4 and 5. In Acts 6, you see the introduction of the uh, problem with the Hellenist Jews and some racial issues that were impacting the church in chapter 6. One of the people that was tasked with solving that problem with the Hellenist Jews was Stephen, but also Philip. And Stephen rises to the service at the end of Acts 6. And in Acts 7, you see Stephen's sermon to the nation of Israel and the charges that were brought against Stephen and how Stephen answered those charges kind of countering those charges with the nation of Israel at the end of Acts 7. And then Stephen pays the ultimate price for that by giving his life in his testimony for Christ. What was the result of that? Stephen gave his life. He was martyred for the cause of Christ. What was the result? Well, Luke tells us. Luke tells us what happened. So would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 8. Acts 8, verse 1. So if you've got your paper, copy the scriptures or your electronic copy of the scriptures, follow along with me as we look at Acts 8, 1 together. Really, following on the footsteps of Acts 7, Luke tells us this, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made him, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of God. Please be seated. We'll get to the rest of the passage as we go throughout our time in the Word today. But um, the gospel comes powerfully to the Samaritans. And we see that kind of fleshed out here in Acts 8. And this is fulfilling the marching orders of the Lord Jesus and specifically what he told the apostles to do. 
So don't forget that uh, Acts 1-8, which we're about to see here, Acts 1-8 really is an outline of the whole book. And as you look at the progression of Acts 1-8, you see that progression moving throughout the book of Acts, particularly in the first uh, 10 to 11 chapters of the book of Acts. I think there's uh, several things that we can see in this text that remind us of the power of the gospel. And truths that weren't just for 2,000 years ago, but really resonates even into the church today. I think one of the great truths relating to the power of the gospel is that the gospel came as a result of persecution. The gospel came as a result of persecution. So if you're taking notes, write that down as kind of the first concept here. The gospel came as a result of persecution. The big idea being persecution for Christ always bears fruit. So the martyrdom of Stephen certainly had a ripple effect on the whole Jerusalem community. Mentioned a few weeks back that there could be as many as 25,000 Christians at this point in the city of Jerusalem. 25,000 new believers, whatever the number is, 25,000 new believers that had come to Christ and were enjoying their Christian faith and loving their Christian faith and reaping all the benefits of what it now meant to be a Christian. And where are they? Hunkered down in Jerusalem. Parked right there. Right there in downtown J-Town. All those believers just kind of hanging out together. Definitely having a lot of fruitful ministry. But not really going. not really fulfilling the Great Commission. They just kind of parked it. That was all about to change. That was all about to change. Acts 1.8, as a reminder, Jesus said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That was fulfilled in Acts 2. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They were doing that. And in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So even though the Jerusalem church was enjoying life in Jerusalem, Jesus gave some pretty clear marching orders here, didn't he? You're not to just stay in one place. You're to go to all the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. 1.8. Now look at 8.1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through, what's the text say? The regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Interesting. Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled by Acts 8.1. Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled by Acts 8. One. Okay, so these guys weren't going anywhere. What was the spark that got them going? Persecution. Persecution. It was the spark. The gospel was being spread because of the death of Stephen. Stephen was having a significant impact in his ministry there in Acts 6 and his preaching in Acts 7 and was martyred for the cause of Christ at the end of Acts 7. And that just had a significant impact. They were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
And Saul was ravaging the church, entering house to house. That word there, ravaging in the Greek, really refers to an animal going after someone. Dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. So significant persecution happened as a result of Stephen giving his life up for Christ. And God really used that. But humanly speaking, humanly speaking, Stephen died an untimely death, didn't he? Humanly speaking. I mean, when you think about it, newly minted in the ministry, highly evangelistic, uh, effective evangelistic campaigns. God was using Stephen to do great wonders and miracles. You see that at the end of Acts 6. And then right in the midst of all this ministry, murdered for Christ. Martyred. In the eyes of the world, untimely, right? But not in God's eyes. Stephen's destiny was to be the first martyr for Jesus. And in God's plan and in God's sovereignty, he was going to use it powerfully to fulfill Acts 1.8. The Bible doesn't speak about this type of pain as being untimely, accidental. The Bible speaks about this type of pain as being a blessing. A blessing. Even something that we as followers of Jesus should be anticipating. As followers of Jesus, we are to expect the same treatment that they gave to the Lord Jesus. Somehow in our Western, cushy church culture, we've been duped into believing that our lives as Christians are going to be radically different from Jesus. Yeah, we're going to live like the just nice, great, cushy South Jersey life and be so different from how the Lord Jesus lived his life. Really? Jesus said this in John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The believers were scattered. Running. In God's sovereignty, he used what happened with Stephen to get them out and start doing a few other things where they scattered into holes and caves and shivering and cowering because of what happened to Stephen and the persecution they were facing? No. What's 8.4 tell us? 8.4. Now those who were scattered went about what? Preaching the word. So yeah, they, they were out of there. They were moving. Okay, we are not staying in Jerusalem a minute longer. And as we go, you know what? We're going to tell people what Jesus has done for us. God's word was going forward in a pretty remarkable way. But this is not how the church would have written the Acts 1-8 script. I mean, if the church had written the Acts 1-8 script, it would have looked a lot different than Stephen having to lose his life people being locked up in prison for the sake of the gospel, they would have written a completely different script, but in God's plan, this is how we're going to do it. Church, you're going to follow in the footsteps of my son. Quite possibly, that type of persecution here in America soon could be knocking on our door. What will happen with us? 
what will happen with you and your family. That can sound scary and intimidating. It shouldn't. You know, you've got 80 or so years on this earth. And the rest of eternity to look back and reflect on how you used this one life for Christ. And you'll be held accountable for how you used it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? And so, this is what happened to the church. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, the gospel came as a result of persecution. The big idea, persecution for Christ always bears fruit. Second big idea here that we see, the gospel tore down walls of prejudice. The big idea being the gospel makes believers one. All right, so let's go to Acts 8, 12. Acts 8, 12. And when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Skip down to verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent down to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so interesting time here in church history where the Samaritans now are coming to Christ. They embrace the gospel. Up to this point in the book of Acts, it is mostly Jews that are coming to Christ. And mostly the message is being pointed in the direction of the Jews. But now in the book of Acts, that starts to pivot. Where now it's not just a Jewish message. Now that message is being embraced by other people groups. The scope is getting a little larger. People are coming to Christ outside of the Jewish nation, and we see a transition happening here in the book of Acts. But the sequence, as Luke records it here, is unique. Look on the screen. They believed in the message of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So they believed. Then the Samaritans were baptized. Then they received the Holy Spirit after Peter and John came and laid hands on them. Okay, so this is an interesting sequence of events that you don't necessarily see in other parts of the book of Acts. Like in Acts 10, different sequence of events is presented. So it's a little unique here in Acts 8. Different from other places in the book of Acts and definitely different from what we experience now as believers. Why is this? Likely because the Samaritans were coming to Christ at a very unique moment in church history. This special moment necessitated special circumstances. And you'll see special circumstances presented again as the full-blown message is given to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Here in Acts 8, the Samaritans are coming to Christ, unique circumstances, and how God goes about authenticating that message is unique here in Acts 8. Why is that? This is really important. Student of the scripture needs to know this. The book of Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive. 
due to its transitional historical emphasis. Luke's purpose in writing the book of Acts isn't necessarily a theology for the church. Luke's purpose in writing the book of Acts is history. It's just history. I'm just going to lay out what happened. Here's the sequence of events. Here's what happened in Acts 2. Here's what happened in Acts 8. Here's what happened in Acts 10. Here's what happened in Acts 19. All important moments, but it's just history. And so we have to remember that Acts is a transitional book. And sometimes how God worked in Acts 2, a little different from Acts 8, a little different from Acts 10. Why unique here in Acts 8? We look at this and say, okay, big deal. The Samaritans are coming to Christ. Well, slow down a bit here. The Samaritans coming to Christ at this moment in church history was huge. It was a big deal. Just like it was a big deal in Acts 10 when the Gentiles, when the Romans are embracing Christ. It was a big deal. Don't forget, for thousands of years, God's program focused primarily on one people group and one nation, the nation of Israel. Now God was shifting his plan, shifting the program. And so the circumstances that God brings that out were different and unique. The Samaritans were a mixed race people group. Half Jewish, half other nationalities or ethnicities. Because of this, there was significant ethnic and spiritual rifts between the Samaritans and the Jews. Check this out. The Samaritans attempted to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. The Samaritans had a different place of worship other than Jerusalem. And the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Hated them. Wanted nothing to do with those people. Check out what the Jews said to Jesus in John 8, 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon It's like, what are the two biggest hurling dirt things we can say to this guy? You're demon-possessed, and you're a Samaritan. It's like the worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. Samaritans were not liked. Not loved by the Jews. In fact, John 4, 9 says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Don't have time for them. Can't be bothered with them. Want nothing to do with them. In fact, on one occasion when Jesus went to share the gospel with the Samaritans, they rejected his message. And you know what James and John said? Check this out. (laughs) They said this in Luke 9. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these guys? (laughs) Lord, let's just torch them right now. (laughs) Barbecue Samaritans right now, Lord, what do you think? Jesus turned and rebuked them. No, we're not torching Samaritans. But that was the feeling. That was the feeling. In God's plan, here in Acts, the Samaritans embrace the gospel. They turn to Christ. They embrace the Jewish Messiah. It was huge. It was a significant event. And interesting, 
In God's sovereignty with Acts 6 and that issue that happened with the Hellenistic Jews and they had to raise up seven Greek-speaking Jews that could solve that problem. Interesting, in God's sovereignty, you got, you got Stephen who's rising to the surface and here you've got Philip rising to the surface and he goes to Samaria, to Samaria and likely, we don't know this from the text, but likely he was one of the only guys that could do it. Why is that? You got a people group that had felt like they had been thrown under the bus by Jews for thousands of years. And a guy shows up that says, you know what? As a Hellenistic Jew, I can identify with that. I can identify with that. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Who knows what would have happened if Peter and John had showed up? God's plan, it's Philip. Interesting. Interesting. Important moment in the healing of the church. The Samaritans are coming to Christ. They're getting baptized. The two big heavyweights of Christianity, the apostles hear about it, and they send the two big guys, Peter and John. They send Peter and John to Samaria to find out what's going on. Peter, he preached the Pentecost message, right? Did Jesus give some special instructions and assignment to Peter relating to the preaching of the kingdom, the preaching of the gospel? Absolutely. He said to Peter, Peter, you're going to be handed the keys of the kingdom. Peter, you're going to be given the keys and the opportunity to present the gospel to different people groups. Peter, I'm going to give you that responsibility to authenticate the message to different people groups because the Samaritans didn't receive the spirit immediately. So, They believe, they're baptized, and the Holy Spirit doesn't come. It waits. Why? It gave the Jewish apostles the opportunity to associate and authenticate. And that's what happened. So Peter and John show up. Rifts between these two people groups for centuries. Would the apostles finally accept the Samaritans as equal brothers once and for all? Peter and John, on behalf of the apostles, say yes. Yes. They prayed for them. They laid hands on them. What happens in that moment? In comes the Holy Spirit, just like in Acts 2. In comes the Holy Spirit, and the text says, this city was under great joy. Great joy. Interesting in God's sovereignty, John, the one who once wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans, was now bringing the fire of the Holy Spirit. Right? Wow, God can change people's lives. Now the Samaritans were one with the Jews in Christ. Peter and John, the leaders of the church, they're the ones that laid hands on them. They saw the Holy Spirit come, likely evidence with the speaking of tongues. They couldn't deny it. They couldn't deny it. They had to admit, now the Samaritans 
are one with us in Christ. In a very important moment in church history, it reminds us of what we have today as believers. Galatians 3, Paul says this, Galatians 3, 27 and 28, for as many as you were baptized into Christ, as many of you were put into Christ, immersed into Christ, for as many as you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And because if you've put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, meaning this, there is no longer spiritual distinction between races, no longer spiritual distinction between race, gender, social classes. All believers now have equal access in Christ. Doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can now be in Christ. Very important. Very important. Great truths relating to the gospel here. The gospel came as a result of persecution. The big idea being persecution for Christ always bears fruits. The gospel tore down walls of prejudice. Big idea, the gospel makes believers one. Third big idea is this. The gospel contrasted the real from the fake. The big idea here being the object of our faith must be Jesus. Okay, so let's look at Acts 9. In the midst of the Samaritans coming to Christ, Luke feels the need, driven by the Holy Spirit, to talk about one particular dude who was in an interesting circumstance. Acts 8 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon, the guy that was just practicing magic, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles he, they performed, he was amazed. So interesting here in Luke's historical account of what's going on in, in the book of Acts, you've got this guy who rises to the surface here. Obviously, none of this is coincidental. It's all driven by the Holy Spirit, likely because right now in the narrative of Acts, you've got Luke saying, I want to give you an example of a guy that wasn't the real deal. And I want to give you an example of a guy who was the real deal, the Ethiopian eunuch, which you'll see next week. So I want to give you two contrasting examples here. Let's first talk about Simon. So Luke tells us about a man who made all the overtures of faith, but it seems like his faith was in the wrong place. His faith was in the wrong place. 
What do we know about Simon? See on the screen here, quick summary of what we just read. He practiced magic in Samaria and amazed the people. He claimed to be someone great, and the people claimed to him, uh, claimed him to be deity-like. See that in 8.10. Interesting is I was reading this week about this guy Simon, or uh, Simon the magician, Simon Magus, as he's referred to in some places. Many, uh, including modern scholars, church fathers, had nothing good to say about this guy. Whether it was this particular event or extra-biblical literature of things that happened with this guy after this event, nothing good to say about this guy. In fact, some modern scholars attribute the start of Gnosticism to this guy, Simon. So the church fathers had nothing good to say about this guy. When Peter and John come, they laid hands on him. But before that, Luke tells us that he, be, he believed and was baptized. Okay, so Luke tells us that. He was believed and baptized. But Luke is also very quick to point out that he was amazed at the signs and the miracles being performed. Luke's very quick to point that out. So Peter and John come. They lay hands on the Samaritans. They receive the Holy Spirit, likely evidenced by the speaking in tongues. What's Simon do? Simon offers to pay Peter and John to have this same ability to impart the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit had given, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, what's it say? He offered them money, saying, verse 19, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Huh. Hey, Peter and John, your ability to lay hands on people and have them speak in tongues is pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. And boy, I'd kind of like to add that to my magical tool chest. You think I can have this, Peter and John? How much you want? You want 50 bucks so that I can... Give the Holy Spirit to people? Interesting. Now, Peter, not a man to mince words. <laughs> Sometimes, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, putting his foot in his mouth, saying things he shouldn't say. I mean, how many times did he do that with Jesus? Just say things you shouldn't have said at the wrong time.